This is Connected Nation, a podcast focused on all things broadband, from closing the digital divide to improving your internet speeds. We talk technology topics that impact all of us, our families, and our communities. Right now, millions of COVID-19 vaccinations are being given out across the country in hopes of finally ending the pandemic. But what role does access to technology, or lack of it, play in getting those shots to Americans? On today's podcast, we talk with the Chief Medical Information Officer for Baptist Health about the challenges of vaccinating the public, how telehealth is being used in new ways to respond to the pandemic, and the role telemedicine will likely play in a post-COVID world. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Connect a Nation. I'm Jessica Denson, and today we're talking with Dr. Brett Oliver, who is the Chief Medical Information Officer for Baptist Health, which is headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky. The healthcare organization provides a wide range of services at hospitals and outpatient facilities in Kentucky, Illinois, and Indiana. Let me give you a few stats before we bring in Dr. Oliver. Last year, Baptist Health had over 300,000 ER visits, 100,000 admissions to nine hospitals, and 800,000 visits to primary care physicians. So this group definitely has a wide range. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Oliver. Nice to meet you. Nice to have you with us today. Thanks, Jessica. I appreciate the invitation to be here. Um, Before we get to the topic at at hand, I want to give our listeners a little more understanding of your role within Baptist Health. Uh, As the Chief Medical Information Officer, many of us might not know what that is. I know that you're involved at a high level of developing and innovating services that impact IT. I did read your bio. In particular, it says that you help bring a clinical expertise to the tech side of healthcare. Can you share how this approach works and why it's important in this setting? Sure, absolutely. So I've been a family physician for 26 years now. Uh, did not grow up with an IT background and not <laughs> a, a computer guy. Uh, and maybe that's why I was asked to do my initial job was if, if Brett could figure it out, maybe <laughs> the rest of the <laughs> providers could. Um, but about seven years ago now, I was asked to be the medical director for our EHR rollout and uh, really kind of fell in love with being this, this translator between the clinicians, my colleagues, and, and the IT team. And there were things that were just so obvious, but both teams lived in, in isolated worlds, and it kind of helps uh, for us to bring them together. Um, and my mentor then about four years ago had my role and retired, and I took over as chief medical information officer at that point. Um, but yeah, we, you know, there may be like a clinical need that a group of providers request or becomes a priority. And then just our ability to understand technically what's possible. I'm certainly not an analyst or a builder, but understand technically what's possible so that we can ensure we've got the most efficient process with the requests. And and again, then understanding the clinical side allows us to hone in on a solution faster with more precision. There's just less trial and error. There's, uh, I think there's a misunderstanding a lot that I hear when it comes to telehealth that that doesn't necessarily mean that no in-person visits with doctors. Is that correct? It's, it's kind of a hybrid of that? I think that's the future. Certainly, there was a period of time last March, April, <laughs> May, where that was the only thing offered uh, in, in, in some respects. Um, but yeah, no, I don't, there, there are things you have to do in person, or at least we don't have the technology right now to not do in person. And that's what I would envision is a, is a hybrid of sorts, depending on the clinical need. Uh, it's no secret that the pandemic really placed an emphasis on the need for telehealth. We're not we're not telling anybody any surprises there. I've talked with doctors and other hospital groups that have discussed 
how the lifting of regulations has really helped make that possible. Uh, what was the experience for you and staff at Baptist Health before and after COVID, or well, someday hopefully after COVID? Yeah, I know, uh, I know. We already reported like that, don't we? Yeah, we're we've just hit a year of closures uh, since all of this started uh, at this recording. So, give us an idea of for the average person, how did you guys deal with such this sudden influx and this need to have telehealth? Yeah, it was a huge impact. Um, it was really motivating. We had, you know, 15, 16, 17 hour days, but I'd never had any difficulty getting out of bed in the morning because we were, you know, we were doing these things to, to um, not to be melodramatic, but to save lives and protect our colleagues and staff. And, and so they're, they're just, even though the work was overwhelming, uh, it, there was no stop stopping us. It was, uh, when I look back on it, it was one of those things that you, you never would want to experience, but boy, what, camaraderie and, and uh, esprit de corps like that was there that uh, really, um, you know, you don't always get to see. So th- that was the positive coming out of it. Um, you know, we went from, fortunately, we had a, at Baptist, we had some virtual visits, um, you know, video visits going on on an acute care, urgent care setting, but we were doing probably 12 to 15 on a busy day uh, prior to the pandemic hitting. When things shut down, we went as high as 75 to 80% of all of our ambulatory visits Oh, wow. Uh, we're done digitally. So we we went from literally having one or two people that did them for us in kind of a centralized location to every every specialty participated in, in video visits or some kind of digital care um, during those first few months. Certainly, uh, primary care led the way in terms of the, the number, but uh, I was surprised to see uh, cardiology, gastroenterology were, were right up there in our top five. Behavioral health was huge. They had already had a nice experience. Uh, within Baptist, and that only solidified there. As we've dropped back to probably around eight to twelve percent uh, of our current outpatient visits are done digitally. They're still up at seventy-five to eighty-five percent in the behavioral health world. It just there's good data to support it. Patients prefer it. Providers prefer it. Those things are hard to recruit for sometimes for providers. And basically, you know, with some of these waivers and things, you can live wherever you want, or you certainly can live where you want in Kentucky, and but serve perhaps an un. Uh, underserved area. What's interesting, though, we just experienced with the bad weather we had in Kentucky back in February with some ice and snow that you'll probably remember. We yes. went from <laughs> we went from uh, gosh, roughly eight or nine percent digital visits to up to twenty five percent just overnight because of the snow. And I, my own office itself, we closed early, but said, "Hey, the remaining patients, if they want a virtual visit." The providers can do them from home. Um, and so, you know, it, it does set up an infrastructure for things besides a pandemic that are, are really beneficial. But it was a huge impact. Uh, we're really just now starting in the last few months to go, wow, okay, what have we built? Because we built these things that would have normally been nine to 12 month projects. We're doing them in seven to 10 days and makes our IT teams very uncomfortable to not roll <laughs> through certain testing, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera. But uh, I guess the long and the short of it was a huge, huge impact, still feeling the impact and now going back and trying to smooth out some workflows and uh, and make things even better. Uh, did it take some time to really understand which approach works for each thing? Or I know you say, you're saying that there was a sudden need and huge, huge leaps were made from something that was used at a lot less level to three, four, five, six, seven times the amount you were before. But did it take a little understanding to... Uh, time to understand what approach worked best for this type of treatment. And the reason I ask this is because as patients, you know, sometimes I'm like, do I just call in? Do I use a video call? <laughs> how, what, if, how, what's the, the level of 
patient and doctor um, interaction and, and deciding what really works best? That's a great question. And, you know, honestly, I think early on, it was simply what was possible rather than what we would prefer. Um, (laughs) You know, I think we would prefer to lay eyes on our patients if we couldn't see them in person. And, And gosh, did we learn a lot for those of us that weren't doing any video visits prior to that. You know, you get a glimpse into your patient's homes, you get someone who um, would come in, you know, dressed really nice and all, they might take their video visit from their bed and their pajamas. And, you know, you know, it's comical, but it's also insightful into their behavioral health and other family members joining um, the visit that um, normally wouldn't be with the patient. And so, you know, you learn a lot. So we did like that video, but, you know, we ran into really quickly uh, problems with, with broadband and with uh, patients even having uh, equipment to perform a video visit. You know, you just kind of get used to having a smartphone. You think everyone's got one, or you think everyone has broadband access. Some people thought they had broadband access and quite frankly, maybe they are paying for it, but it wasn't enough to support a video visit. So uh, I think initially the first few months, at least it was, you know, whatever we could make possible to help care for the care for folks. But now we just experienced the world's biggest pilot essentially for new work <laughs> yeah. and approaches to things. And I think now that hopefully with the vaccine work, which is another huge lift for teams, but now that we can take a breath and learn what worked, what didn't, what were areas that we didn't utilize digital health, but now that we have some experience, we can see that uh, it would be really, really good to use. And what didn't work? What was a miss? Um, for instance, in surgery, this is something we're not doing now, but do you really need to drive to see the surgeon an hour and a half for a post-op wound check from an appendectomy? Maybe in some instances, the answer is yes, because of comorbidities or just other clinical situations. But I would argue that most of the time the answer is no. And the video visit with the patient would be excellent. Uh, make the more efficient for the patient, not having to do all this driving just to have them take a quick peek at it uh, and, and more efficient for the surgeon. Um, so I think right now we, we need a little time, a little bandwidth to work through these changes and workflows and see what fits best where. And I think it's probably important for me to state now that I think from my perspective, I I tend to kind of blur the lines a little bit because I am a clinician and I'm on the IT side of things, though, most of the time. And these things, we can't drive them in IT. It's my job to educate, show what's possible, maybe poke a little bit. But (laughs) if I'm driving, you know, the surgeon's workflow and they don't see the utility and it's not going to work. So, you know, we're working through some of those cultural changes. Um, But boy, I tell you what, the, the hesitancy, some of the same folks that a year and a half, two years ago, said, you know, this, nah, that's, that's not high quality care. You can't do it that way. Um, but then we're forced to, they didn't have a choice. Tons of comments like, you know what, that wasn't so bad. I think we could, we could utilize this. So, you know, there was a silver lining to things that I think this forced use of telemedicine really uh, is, I mean, you've heard it, I'm sure a, a dozen different places, but accelerate that and not just the technology, but the cultural shifts that, that we had to see for it to work. Well, on the on the front of telehealth, before we move on to vaccinating um, so many Americans right now, what about remote monitoring devices? How are those being leveraged by Baptist Health right now? I've heard a lot of discussion and talk about, you know, you could they can monitor it, doctors can monitor everything from diabetes to how your heart's doing. Um, how has that been implemented or um, as part of this effort? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, if you think about, let's go back to the video visit. Um, you know, you're limited. I can. There are some exams I can do. There are some things I can ask the patient to perform to evaluate, you know, nerves and things like that. But I, I still, I'm not laying hands on. I can't hear their lungs. I can't hear their heart. 
Um, and so remote patient monitoring can take all kinds of forms. One of that could be a device that allows you to extend that physical exam remotely. So I can listen to their heart and lungs. I can look in their eyes, their ears, their throat. Um, so there's that piece to it. Then you've got remote monitoring that's more intermittent. So let's say we sent you home, you had COVID, uh, you're in the emergency department, uh, you know, you're, you're a pretty healthy person and you meet the parameters to go home, but we also know COVID folks can, can crash quickly. And so we want to keep a closer eye on you than just sending you home and ha- saying, hey, call us if you have any trouble. So we send you home with a pulse oximeter, which measures blood oxygen levels. And we ask you two or three times a day to check that, record that and report it back to us, either through our portal or through a phone call from a, our nurse call center. So there's that level of monitoring. And then one of the things we were already looking at prior to the pandemic is a continuous monitoring. So we had a we have an opportunity for sure to decrease the uh, the readmission rate for our patients that have congestive heart failure. They just they tend to to bounce back to the hospital quickly. And part of it is you know we send them home and we we we're just inside of our four walls and we don't get an idea of what's going on and how can we intervene sooner. And so that's what remote patient monitoring really allows for is that the inside outside of our four walls to really get that data and hopefully have insights that occur sooner, maybe even before the patient or provider would have picked up on it uh, traditionally to make those interventions, keep people out of the hospital, keep them well. Um, and so I, you know, I just think along with all the things that happened digitally, it's just advanced that uh, tremendously. We, we pivoted, we were looking at congestive heart failure and COPD and keeping our patients out of the hospital. Um, when COVID hit, we used some continuous monitoring devices to uh, surge plan, to plan on keeping, you know, what, what happens if our hospitals got overwhelmed like they did in New York City? You know, so we started having conversations about, do we put patients in dorm rooms? Do we put them in hotels? And then if we do, how do we monitor them? You know, we're not set up. We don't have a network there. We don't have devices. And so utilizing this IC le- ICU level uh, monitoring with devices was was part of our plan. And then allowing, you know, early on with, with COVID, patients would deteriorate quickly. They would deteriorate late in the illness, even though you thought they were doing okay. And it was just, it was very scary and, and so new uh, that patients were staying in the hospital much longer than, you know, traditionally you would say with a pneumonia. And so what we used is these continuous monitors to allow them to go home, but not to go home with with no one keeping an eye on them. And it wasn't just a nurse calling. This was a monitor that was watching them 24-7. So just a couple of, of places that we've utilized them. And and like everything else, it's really opened up folks' eyes to how we could utilize this in other, other clinical scenarios across the organization. And as if the healthcare system had faced a huge challenge already, I can't imagine now the challenge of vaccinating millions of Americans. Um, Baptist Health is part of that. Um, help us understand just how big of an effort that is from your point of view. I would think it has to be difficult. It's like the next level of this uh, challenging time, especially for healthcare workers. Um, explain some how you all are approaching that, how how you feel the, the country is doing with that, um, just from your point of view. Sure, sure. I'm really glad you asked the question, though, because it is a huge lift and it may not be so apparent on the surface you know, the manufacturers send you vaccine and you get it. Shoot, you've been doing that your entire career in your offices. And, and so why, why is it such a big deal? Um, and just some of the logistics, when you're talking about something like the Pfizer vaccine, 
that requires, you know, freezing at such extreme temperatures, well, you don't just put that in your, you know, in your cooler and, and utilize that. So, you know, just having the right equipment for certain and then the logistics behind things. But, you know, I'll tell you the difficulty really has, or the challenge, let's say, because I think our teams have risen to that, have really come in a, in a bunch of different forms. You know, first of all, you've got teams that are fatigued, you know, this we're going mm-hmm. on 12 months and yes, there's been some respite here and there and, and things have gotten a, a lot better, but you've got teams that are really tired from just the nonstop projects. Because once we got through some of the initial things we stood up for COVID, you've got a laundry list of projects that have been put on hold that are important for the organization too. So you just got folks that are already fatigued. Now I will say that the hope that has come with the vaccine has <laughs> overcome some of that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not it's not trivial to know, wow, we've got a solution here. This is going to change things. Let's keep going. Um, now, the limited supply of the vaccine, certainly as we're recording this today, it's a lot better and, and very encouraging, maybe even a fourth one um, in the next couple of weeks being available. But that limited supply was always going to make any solution technical solution challenging, make sure you're being equitable, you're you're following the guidelines that the state uh, is putting out in terms of who's eligible at that point. So all those parameters making uh, something stand up, you know, overnight to, to say, well, you, you can sign up if you're a 1A, but not if you're a 1B in terms of the vaccine is, is challenging. And then the supply of the vaccine wasn't in our control. You know, typically we would work with our own supply chain and how much can you get and all this. And we would actually find out just a few days, no more, not even a week before we were give it out, how much we were going to get. And so, you know, setting up appointment structures that way, very challenging when you don't have control over the supply. Yeah, that I would think that would be incredibly challenging here, set up these, um, these schedule all these people, but you're not sure how much you're going to have. So you don't want to over schedule, you don't want to under schedule. Uh, some of the vaccine is also, um, it, it it can't I guess fresh isn't the word but it, it expires right correct, if you don't correct. get it out in a certain amount of time so um at Connected Nation a big emphasis for us is broadband access which is high speed internet and all the things that surround that from telework to telehealth which is why we're talking with you today so without internet access what kind of challenges are there for some of these um uh facilities or for, or if their patients don't have that access. What is the importance of that in your point of view as a healthcare provider? From the vaccine perspective, Jessica, I think it it's really all the scheduling is, is done online and it's not just Baptist anywhere that was, whether it was the state saying, here's where the locations of a vaccine administered, where that's happening, whether it's the horse park in Lexington, it's Kroger down the street, it's our organization. That's all, it was all done online on the internet. Uh, and really, the, I, I do give the state and some of the health departments credit, like they, they did have folks reaching out, but you wouldn't get an email saying you were eligible if you, if you didn't have access to the internet. And then the scheduling piece, it was all online. If the, there were phone numbers presented, but literally all the phone number was, was linked you to a person who then enters your information online. <laughs> um, and with the accessibility being literally I mean, early on, within 15 minutes, whatever slots you had were were booked. Um, if you didn't have, you know, internet access, you waiting the next morning to call wasn't going to get you a spot. So there certainly was some inequities with that. Um, you know, and in Kentucky, we're 40th in the nation in terms of broadband access. Um, I know that it seems like you look at some figures that oh, it's I, 90% of folks have access to broad. I, I just haven't found that to be practically the case, and whether that's it's technically broadband, but they can't support things like a video visit. 
um, or they can't afford the a month for that broadband. It puts us way behind the national average. So it does take an intentionality from us from an operations standpoint to make sure, well, if they don't have internet, if they've got a flip phone, they don't have a smartphone, how how are we going to do the, you know, provide the same service for them? And vaccine was just, you know, front and center with that. Um, in preparing for this, you gave me a lot of good information and background. And um, one of the things that I, I really uh, thought was interesting that you pointed out and something that we do talk about a lot at Connected Nation is that sometimes policymakers, they live in larger cities and there's significant number of people and families that don't have access in the larger cities or the rural areas. Uh, how is how is Baptist Health and how do you think healthcare providers in general can address this need in urban areas that maybe there isn't affordability like you're like you were talking about for some low-income groups or in our rural areas how how are you all handling that that um gap i think one of the one of the waivers that was just critical to providing equity in the care that we've been delivering since the pandemic is allowing us to be reimbursed for phone calls um, a number of times, whether the video visit didn't go through, or we knew from the very beginning it wasn't going to work, but we were allowed, and I'll put that in air quotes, allowed to have a visit with them over the phone. Um, that that was just indispensable because right? we just had folks that could not participate otherwise, and they were at risk. You didn't want them coming in to the office either. So, so I think you know, the statement that I made to you about it's really important to make sure that those policymakers remember that is, you know, you start seeing things like, well, we're going to pull back that phone use now because now they can come back in or maybe it's safer. And just to remember that it, it wasn't just the pandemic that that uncovered or just you know the safety from the pandemic that that uncovered. Is it is it fair to say that somebody could do a video visit because they have access to broadband and it's more convenient for them? Or let's say it's an elderly person who can't drive or it's dangerous for them to drive. They normally have to get their daughter to get off of work to take them to the office, but now they can do a video visit and it's a lot safer and easier for them. Oh, but Mr. Johnson doesn't have broadband and now you won't allow for a phone call. So, you know, I just, I just want it, to, it's not just the pandemic that this has uncovered that. And I think it's really important, even if there's some kind of sunsetting clause to it, to say, we're going to allow that to happen. Uh, the phone call visit, for instance, um, for now, until we can assure that people have better, you know, coverage or access. Uh, as you may know, you know, with like Kentucky Wired Project, there's all this, you know, great press about the 3,000 miles, middle miles of, of internet access or internet uh, infrastructure for the state. But it it still comes down to that last mile. It doesn't do mm-hmm. me any good as a patient or a provider if it's sitting out on my road a mile away, but I can't get, you know, one of the providers uh, or it's not affordable for them to, to bring it to my home. Uh, so, you know, we still have a lot, to, uh, a lot to overcome, but I mean, I'm encouraged that it's getting the attention uh, that it has. And in Kentucky, I think it's House Bill 140. Um, if it's not been signed, it's on the governor's desk to provide that equity for phone visits. So I'm very encouraged that Kentucky has been leading the way with some of that uh, legislation. Um, I think that what you're saying is is exactly right. It hits the, the nail on the head that the need for the last mile and that we can't forget that there are these vulnerable populations that really need those connections going forward. And I've heard um, other healthcare providers that we've talked to uh, through this series have said that the regulation, the lifting of the regulation has really impacted a lot of patients in a positive way and and doctors. So um, 
I, I won't keep you all day. I could talk to you all day because you have such such great insights on something that's so important to so many people. But what are some things that you'd want patients to understand about this unique time in healthcare? What would you really want to leave them with? You know, I think that there is an enhancement of our current state and we really need to rethink. Maybe it's not patients as much as providers, but as patients rethink, how do you want to receive care? As I've mentioned to you before, I think, you know, we've got there's $20 billion of venture capital that was poured into the digital health space last year during a pandemic when finances weren't <laughs> very secure, right? It's not going away. And so as a patient, how, you know, how are you going to get access to these, you know, essentially are going to become table stakes forms of care. And then as a provider, how are we going to make sure that we don't leave anybody behind? Uh, you know, I don't know that a digital solution will always, it will ever be a hundred percent, but as we're rethinking certain care delivery models and what can be done at alternative locations with high quality, high convenience, and even a lower cost. But again, at the same time, try to avoid segmenting care. That's where, you know, it's a challenge as a healthcare organization to make sure that we don't, we don't have services that aren't integrated. If something happens to my patient that someone's monitoring their diabetes, but I never learn about it as their primary care physician, that's, that's not good. So I, I think the biggest thing is there's more to come. This has just opened up a wonderful door to provide convenience and a better patient experience that's long been ignored. And there'll be more and more things that you can do from home, from video to remote patient monitoring and, and detect changes and opportunities to intervene earlier in care when it makes a difference. Um, so I, I really think uh, patients are going to uh, like that. And the things that they've come to want to do and, and enjoy doing it with their phone or their computer, I think healthcare is going to start catching up a little bit. Well, well said. Well, I'm going to leave it there then. Um, I'd love to have you on again as new things um, come out of this and there are new developments in telehealth, especially as we see how the post-COVID world uh, shakes up. So I would love to have you back, Dr. Oliver. Oh, I appreciate it, Jessica. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Again, our guest today was Dr. Brett Oliver, who is the Chief Medical Information Officer for Baptist Health, which is headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky. The group serves patients at hospitals and facilities in Kentucky, Illinois, and Indiana. I'll provide a link to Baptist Health's website in the description of this podcast. I'm Jessica Denson. Thanks for listening to Connected Nation. If you like our show and want to know more about us, head to connectednation.org or look for the latest episodes of Connected Nation on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Pandora, or Spotify.